Look at this pen I got at Hot Topic. Do I need this? Absolutely not. Did I buy it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I think we're good to be Gwen. Welcome back to Gumshoe Weekly. The epicenter of murder, mystery, and audio problems. <laughs> I'm your host, Brianna. And I'm your host, Judy. Like Judy. from the song. Judy, Judy, Bo Booty. <laughs> the name game. That's such Judy. a good show. All right, well. <laughs> this is, sorry, the laptop just did something weird and I was like, that sounds horrible. Know. That is horrible. I don't like it. That is horrible. Well, we're here. Okay. I have a question for you. (laughs) Go ahead. If you could learn any instrument and be a pro at it, what instrument would you do? I think the guitar. Yeah. Because everyone. (laughs) I want to be basic at the guitar. Everyone is sexually attracted to (laughs) guitarists, no matter the gender. I can I can see that I can see that. Um, well, you know, I'm five minutes away from needing to get a blanket on that cold. Oh my! Go get a blanket. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna get a blanket. You never pause the audio. No. It drives me insane. I- All right, we're back with this heathen who <laughs> doesn't ever pause the fucking audio, and I have to edit out ten minutes of dead air. Anyway. Anyway. I think I would want to learn the drums. Ooh. I feel like they're badass. Or be a better singer because that's like a, a instrument i have two instruments that i already know how to play <laughs> what are they they're sexy the oboe and the saxophone i kind of know how to play the piano i could play the recorder <laughs> <laughs> i could play a fucking kazoo <laughs> play the shit out of a kazoo <laughs> you know Slide those whistle? clappers you get from the dollar store i'm a fucking beast at those clack, 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 clack. <laughs> i could do the spoon like they do i could do stomp Oh, yeah. Let's do stomp part two. <laughs> I think there was a stomp part two. Fuck. <laughs> okay, I have a question. If extra lives were a real thing in this world, how would you get them? Like in Mario, you have to like go behind this mushroom. Yeah. There it is. In an ideal world. Okay, no, let me say in this world. What if God was one of us? No. <laughs> Just a stranger on a bus. <laughs> Waiting to be seen. <laughs> In this world, I would want it to be like levels of kindness. Like mm. people can redeem themselves mm-hmm. and get more time. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. Or sexual favors. I don't know. One of those. <laughs> oh my god. I'm joking. <laughs> or am I? <laughs> Winky. <laughs> Winky face. <laughs> You need to say the face faster next time. I thought Winky would get it across. I didn't wink. It just said Winky. Winky. <laughs> Willie. <laughs> Willie. <I> meant... <laughs> Winky face. But no, just the, the first part. Lala. <laughs> so I first thought of a different answer and then my second answer was like, oh, it should be if you do like something like really crazy impactful to someone's life then you get it like without knowing Mm -hmm. like maybe you die and then you like get (laughs) up and you're like how did i get this 
That reminds me of the comic book I'm reading right now. Uh, it's called Kill or Be Killed, and it's about this guy who's going through this really bad depression, and he decides he's going to kill himself. So he jumps off a building, and he ends up surviving. But when he gets to his room that night, and he's like, oh, fuck, like, I actually wanted to live. He gets to his room that night, and a demon comes to the room and is like, well, you know, you didn't, you survived, and that's at a, that's at a price. So here's, the, like, this is the price you have to pay now. Each month you have to kill somebody bad. And every that's month. That's so cool. Yeah. That's like a, something I feel. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> I feel like that's something that a like controversial angel would do. Not really yeah. a demon. Like you're killing someone bad. Yeah. That's still a good thing. So, the, yeah. So the book is actually really good. I'm not crazy about the artwork, but the book is really good. And he, the, the demon's like, if you don't do it, then I'm going to kill you. And he starts to realize towards the end of the month that he gets really, really sick. Like he's on death's doorstep and it's like, he's like, Oh fuck, I'm going to die if I don't kill somebody. And as soon as he thought of killing somebody, he started to instantly feel better. So in order to stay alive, he has to now kill one bad person a month. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a story. You're going through all these different, he's like time jumping, but it's like, he's talking to you as you're reading it. Yeah. And it's really good. The first person he kills is somebody he, Somebody, he went to school with this this kid, or he was friends with this kid. Does he have to find the bad person or the demon? Yes. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. So that's the thing. The first person he decides to kill was his childhood friend. His The, the friend's little older brother had molested him, so he decides to kill him instantly. The older brother? He decides to kill the brother, yeah. The oh. older brother of the friend, because um, the friend ended up dying. So he thought about it and he's like, I thought it was just a memory. Like I thought my mind altered this memory. And he was like, but after the kid died, everybody was like, oh, I know him. I'm close with him. And he's like, but I have this memory with this kid that I never spoke about. So is it an altered memory or is it just something I never spoke about? About the molestation? Yeah, about the kid's comment. Because the kid, it was a flippant comment and they were both young. So he didn't think about it at the time. So he kills the older brother. He's like, he's like, I'm not really torn up about it. Um, but then he sees a day later that it comes out that the death of that kid's brother leads to a child sex ring. Oh! So, so that's the first murder. I haven't, I've just started reading it and it's actually really good. He's like a cool detective. I want to read that shit. That sounds good. Yeah. It was really good. I'll let you borrow it. Um, but it's called Killed or Be Killed. Um, it's really good though so far. I've only read, like I said, a couple chapters or a couple issues. So... And there's like four books, four or five books already. So mm. it's really good. Anyway, I think what you said was good. <laughs> Your answer was good. Um, well, My only thing with that one is that it's hard to make it. What, who, who decides what's impactful on somebody else's life? Well, that's the thing is nobody decides. It's just like you don't even know, but you like saved this person's life. Or you like did this thing like mm-hmm. that was so good. You don't know. Yeah. So it's not like you're, like, trying to incentivize it. Mm-hmm. It's And you can only get it by doing something really good. Mm-hmm. My other idea had been it should be, like, a perilous journey you have to go on to get it where you might die on the journey getting it. That's very uh, adventurous. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a Like it's at, book. like, like a, the top of a volcano, basically, that mm-hmm. kind of thing where it's, like... That's interesting. You could die trying like to achieve it. I feel like there'd be a lot it. more deaths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or is it something like only an elite group of people know, or is it just something you know from the beginning of time? I think it would it'd be something that's like, like how we know the eight wonders of the world. 
Mm. It'd be like... It's kind of just common knowledge. Here's but... where it is. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I feel like that'd be really hard for a lot. Like, it'd be a very rare thing to get. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Like, if you have to travel all the way to Machu Picchu. Yeah. But if you could go all that way because you're, like, you, like, carry your very sick and dying child on your back, like, yeah. that would be pretty hmm. sick, so. That's interesting. Yeah. That'd be hard, too, because then there's people who don't have money, so it's also, like, a class thing. Yeah. You don't have any money. Everything is a class thing, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, in this world that, like, in that... If that were to take place, it'd definitely be, like, a huge class thing. It's not... Yeah. Like, the fucking fountain of youth. Mm-hmm. Who fuck knows where it is, really? <laughs> well, we could probably figure it out if we set our minds to it. Let's slap some fucking hands, man. Do a little slap <laughs> Let me get my, my, my instrument. Crack, 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 crack. <laughs> Let me get a hand, a paper, and a, pe- and a knife. <laughs> and just hold one up frantically as you... Okay. Okay. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors, shoot, scissor. What the fuck? You won. <laughs> I did paper before. <laughs> I know, but that one was like weird and we all just stared at each other, so I thought it wouldn't count because we didn't say it either. Okay, that's fine. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot, rock. Rock. <laughs> rock, paper, scissors, shoot, rock. Scissors. Oh, I win! <laughs> you did. <laughs> um, I'll go first. Okay. Okay, so just a trigger warning for my story. Definitely trigger warning, rape, sexual abuse, uh, murder, and violence against children, all of that. Pedophilia, everything. Okay, cold start. 4.20 p.m., November 16th, 1971, 10-year-old Puerto Rican girl Carmen Colon disappears. She'd been running an errand on West Main Street for her grandmother. Jack Corbin, the owner of the pharmacy, informed her that her grandmother's prescription was not yet filled. Carmen said, I gotta go, I gotta go, and left the storefront, left the storefront, getting in a nearby parked car. Fifty minutes later, multiple people driving on Interstate 490 saw her sprinting from a reversing dark-colored Ford Pinto hatchback, naked from the waist down, desperately trying to get any other car to stop and help her. It's estimated that around 100 cars passed her. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. One of the witnesses then saw her submissively being led back to the vehicle. And another witness said that they were pretty sure they saw two people in the car. She was reported missing to the Rochester Police Department at 7.50 p.m. Two days pass and two teenage boys find Carmen's body laying in a gully, I-490, and the village of Churchville, 12 miles from where she was last seen. While searching, they recover her coat in a culvert pipe 300 feet away. Twelve days later, her pants are recovered close to the service road by her observed escape attempt. A few key factors brought her case to the light of the media. One, her age. Two, the crime committed against her. And three, the sheer amount of witnesses who saw her and did nothing. The Times Union, the Democrat and Chronicle, and local businesses as well as residents combined offered up, combined and offered up rewards for important information regarding the case and turned over any tips they had to the police. They had multiple suspects, but all were eliminated by December. The autopsy findings were that she had been raped, there was a fractures to her skull and one vertebra, and she ha- she died of manual strangulation. There were extensive scratches from fingernails all over her body. 
So then the next year in 1972, early 1972, uh, they put up five billboards that are like that. uh, They show her. They have a little bit of information about her case. And it's basically asking for tips. And the reward is posted on them, which I think was like, I think it came to like $6,000. So 17 months later at 5 p.m. on April 2nd, 1973, 11-year-old Wanda Wachowicz was Wachowicz, disappears while returning home from an errand in Rochester. She, brought, she bought groceries at 5.15 p.m. and headed down Conkey Avenue. When she didn't reach her destination, her mother reported her missing at 8 p.m. The search was extensive, with 50 detectives searching near her home, the, the Delicatessen, and the Genesee River, which is nearby where she would hang out. Multiple people in her neighborhood saw her walking north of Avenue B. All saw her struggling with the grocery bag. And some classmates saw her brace the bag on a fence to adjust her grip as a brown vehicle drove by. At 10.15 a.m. the next day, police find Wanda's body fully clothed at the base of a hillside access road to Route 104 and Webster, seven miles from Rochester. It looked like she'd been thrown from a moving vehicle and rolled down the embankment. The autopsy showed sexual assault, strangled from, she'd been strangled from behind, possibly with a belt. She had defensive wounds and had been redressed after her death. There was semen and pubic hair on her and white cat fur on her clothing. A $10,000 reward is put up, which leads to an eyewitness who saw her standing alongside the passenger door of a large brown vehicle talking to the driver two-tenths of a mile from her home. Another saw a man forcing a red-haired girl matching her description into a a light-colored Dodge Dart on Conkey Avenue between 5.30 and 6 p.m. The RPD dismisses the connection to her and Carmen's case, although they brought a sergeant from the Cologne case to the Wachowicz case uh, task force. Months later, November 26, 1973, 11-year-old Michelle Manza doesn't return home from school. Carolyn Manza, her mother, reports her missing. She was seen by classmates at 3.20 p.m. walking towards a shopping plaza by her school to get the purse her mother left in a store that day. And at 3.30 p.m., Michelle is seen crying, sitting in the passenger seat of a beige or tan vehicle speeding down Ackerman Street before turning on Webster. At 5.30 p.m., a witness sees a man standing by a large beige or tan vehicle with a flat tire en route. 350 in Walworth, holding a girl matching Michelle's description by the wrist. The witness stopped uh, to assist the man, and the man grabbed the girl and pushed her behind him, behind his back. He also blocked the license plate and then just stared intimidatingly at the witness until the witness drove away without helping him. At 10.30 a.m. November 28th, Michelle is found face down in a ditch, fully clothed on a rural road in Macedon. Macedon. How do you say that? Macedon? Macedon? Macedon. 15 miles from Rochester. In the autopsy, they find blunt force trauma to her body. She'd been raped. She was strangled from behind with possibly a thin rope. There was white cat hair on her clothing. Leaves were in one of her hands that matched the leaves in the nearby area saying that well indicating that she died at or near where she was found there was a 
Partial palm print on her neck, semen on her body, and her underwear. Her stomach showed that she'd eaten a burger one hour before her death, corroborating a sighting of her with a Caucasian man with dark hair between 25 and 35 years old, 6 feet tall, 165 pounds, at a, and, and 165 pounds at a fast food place in Penfield at 4.30 p.m. the day she disappeared. These cases... Um, they all have alliterative names, so it's dubbed the Alphabet Murders, mm-hmm. which you may have heard of. Um, they also were called the Double Initial Murders, and the, one of the biggest like things that they drew between all three cases is that the girls' names all started with the two letters, and then they were dumped near a place that started with that letter, so... Carmen Cologne in Churchville and uh, Michelle Manza in Macedon and um, Wanda Walkowicz in, I think it was Webster. Um, They ended up interviewing over 800 potential suspects, but none of them led them to who did it. All three girls were from a poor Catholic family, had few friends, and had recently been bullied or had poor performance at school. The investigators also considered a possibility that the perp may have been employed by or had knowledge of social services to indi- to initiate contact with or gain trust of the victims. Um, one of the th- other things they have in common would be that, uh, because they weren't all the same nationality, and usually you don't see them range, but uh, Rochester, they all went missing from Rochester in the early afternoon on days of light or heavy rain. Their bodies were all found close to expressways, which were at locations easily accessible by a vehicle, and they were all short. They were all viewed as lonely outcasts among their peers, and Walkowicz and Manza both ingested food after, mi- after being missing, but before they died meaning that their abductor fed them. And they were both redressed after their death. The... Nope. I already said that part. So, there is a lot of... uh, On the internet, there is a lot of back and forth between whether or not Wachowicz and Manzo are connected to Cologne's case. Just because a few differences, which are... Apparently, there's a big psychological difference between someone who will kill someone face-to-face and someone who does it behind your back. Yeah. And Carmen was strangled head-on, mm-hmm. and the other two were killed behind their back. Um, the other two were redressed. Carmen wasn't. Uh, the other two had DNA and white cat hair on them. Carmen didn't. Mm-hmm. So they And there was also the fact that somebody was like... Some people said that they saw two people... In the car. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if it was like... Carmen was the first one, right? Yeah. So what if it was like... She was the first victim. You learn mm-hmm. from that. And then you keep going. You That's... don't like to see them head on. You don't like them naked. Because a lot of the times it's you redress them to cover up the shame of it. And mm-hmm. stuff like that. That's what I thought. Or you didn't do it in your house because the white cat hair. Yeah. That's what I thought too is because... I felt like some of these things could have been natural evolutions of someone who, like, learned, mm-hmm. you know. That's what I, I also thought, uh, because they didn't, they couldn't sol- solidly say that they weren't connected, but... 
they were like, these are why they're not connected instead of being like, what, these are why they are mm-hmm. connected. Same area, same time span, too. Um, same crime. So here are some of the suspects that they had. Uh, so Miguel Colon. So he was Carmen's uncle, uh, and he was a strong suspect in her murder. He was the brother of her father. And when their parents were separated, uh, when Carmen's parents were separated, he became close with her mother, Guillermina. So normally when she, when Carmen walked to the pharmacy, her grandfather Felix would come with her. But on this day, she had begged to go alone, um, which that's going to fucking suck for the family. The day we finally let you go alone. So, weeks before her abduction and murder, her uncle purchased a car closely matching the vehicle seen by eyewitnesses reversing upon Interstate 490 in pursuit. The investigators conducted a search of his vehicle um, and said that the interior and exterior had been extensively cleaned and the trunk had been washed with a strong cleaning solution. Questioning of the dealership, which had been recently sold, which had recently sold the vehicle to Miguel, said that the trunk had not been washed with a detergent prior to sale. There was also a doll belonging to Carmen in his car, uh, but they said that she frequently traveled in his vehicle, uh-huh. so it could have been that there because of that. Yeah. Um, and according to a friend, two days after the death of his niece, Miguel had informed him of his intention to leave the country as he had done something wrong in Rochester. He then moved to Puerto Rico four days after the murder of his niece. That doesn't even sound right. No. (laughs) The investigators traveled to San Juan in 1972 to question him, but newspapers had published the news of him, them approaching him, Mm -hmm. and he fled from the authorities. He then surrendered surrendered on March 26th and agreed to be extradited to be questioned. The thing is, you're making yourself look hella guilty. Yes, yes. He couldn't give a good alibi and nobody would corroborate where he was. Mm-hmm. Um, there was circumstantial evidence, but no physical evidence. Or, like, to him, to mm-hmm. the crime scene, to his vehicle. In 1991, he committed suicide um, at 44 because uh, following an incident of domestic violence in which he shot and wounded both his wife and his brother. Jeez. So what the fuck? So that's the end of that. We don't know if it was him. The thing is, if he has such guilt for his brother, mm-hmm. why wouldn't he have even more guilt for a little girl? That's true. So and his aunt. I mean, and maybe his that, at that. Yeah, maybe that proves that he didn't do it. So Dennis Termini... Also considered a strong suspect. Uh, He was 25 years old at the time and a firefighter. He was a prolific... He was a prolific serial offender known as the garage rapist who committed a minimum of 14 rapes of teenage girls and young women between 1971 and 73. So same years of operation. He was also known to own a beige vehicle similar in description. Um... He is also known to have lived on Box Street, which is close to where she was, la- where Michelle Manza was last seen alive. Five weeks after the death of the final victim, on January first, nineteen seventy-four, Termini um, attempted to abduct a teenage girl at gunpoint, 
and then fled the scene when she refused to stop screaming. This dude's a fucking firefighter. Yes. So... Not that that stops you from being fucking crazy, but... But, yeah. Shortly after, he then abducted another potential victim, but was pursued by the police, and he committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. So, they did a forensic examination of his vehicle, and there was white cat fur on the upholstery. Did they do... I'm sure you're going to tell me. Did they do DNA? So, in... January 2007, his body is exhumed for a DNA sample for comparison um, with the semen samples, and it confirmed that he was not responsible for her murder. Wow. For Wachowicz's murder. Um, however, there was no physical evidence retrieved from Cologne or Mayanza, even though Mayanza had had it on her. I guess they didn't get it or store it or keep it. Yeah. But we know for sure he didn't kill Wachowicz. Hmm. So then Kenneth Bianchi, or Bianchi? B-I-A-N-C-H. Oh, you know the man. Yeah. (laughs) We're friends. No. (laughs) No, I'm not friends with him. (laughs) So Kenneth Bianchi um, is a serial killer who at the time of the murders worked as an ice cream vendor in Rochester. He worked at locations close to the first two murder scenes, and he'd relocated from Rochester to Los Angeles in January 1976. Uh, Between 1977 and 1978, he and his cousin, Angelo Buono? 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 Buono. Might be a silent U, like a Bono. Mmm. B-U-O-N-O. B-U-O-N-O. Bono? Bono? I'm going to say Bono. I don't like let the U kind of sit in there. Bono? (laughs) Angelo Bono Jr. (laughs) Oh my God. Bono. Angelo Bono Jr. Jr. Angelo Bono Boner Jr. (laughs) Why do I make so many dick jokes? I don't know. You always make it around the wrong person, too. (laughs) I do. Fuck me. I think that's like a, a hereditary thing because my mom does the same shit. And also my grandmother did it as well. Uh, Everybody's uncomfortable. I'm going to say something weird. I'm going to make it worse. Yep. <laughs> so between 1977 and 1978, um, they, committed to the, committed, they committed the Hillside Strangler murders of 10 girls and young women between the ages of 12 and 28. Uh, Bianchi was never charged with the alphabet murders and denied any culpability. He also repeatedly attempted to have them clear him of suspicion. However, at the time of living in Rochester, he was known to have driven a vehicle of the same color and model. Did they get his DNA? It doesn't say. Uh. Some bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. So then Joseph Nasso... In April 2011, a 77-year-old named Joseph Nasso was arrested in Reno, Nevada for murdering four women in California between 1977 and 1994. Um, All were sex workers, and all of their names began with the same letters, like the same first and same last. Interesting. Yes. Um, He... Lived in Rochester during the early 70s, and he 
He was described as a personal a person of interest. DNA testing showed he is not a match from just Wanda because I don't know what they did with the other samples. I feel like it shouldn't be that hard and you shouldn't be losing fucking evidence. Yeah. Oh, and they also, interestingly enough, called his cases the California alphabet murders. Because <laughs> there needs to be a difference. Yeah. He was convicted, sentenced to death on 2013 of the, just the California ones, though. He is right now on death row for six murders. I think I had said they tried him for four. Yeah, so he's actually on, on death row for six murders now. It was originally four, but they found two more to pin to him. Pin correctly. So three of them had alliterative names, and one was actually named Carmen Lorraine Colon, or it might have just been Colon for this person because there's not a thingy. He kept pretty extensive notes about his victims, and he described them, but he didn't mention the alphabet at any point in it. The thing that was pointed out by... Let me properly credit this person. Fuck, it was that guy I just told you about. Michael Benson. Michael Benson said that he had pretty extensive notes on them and he didn't make any note of their names. Uh, he also said that in the 1960s is when alliterative names were popular. So because of Marilyn Monroe and Bridget Bardot. So they think that it was like people, you know, just continuing the trend. Mm-hmm. So there were people, more people who had matching initials. He said that they have no indication that initials meant anything to any of the killers. And the fact that it was two Carmen Colognes just was a crazy factoid, basically. He said that there was a possibility that Nassau was a copycat, uh, but there wasn't any evidence of it. Mm-hmm. So, right now I don't have any answers at all for you, but that article was just written last year. But they, since they have DNA testing, he the... Michael is positive that they're going to find a um, a match eventually. Yes. Uh, I got all my information from Wikipedia and ANETV.com. To this day, it is unsolved. It's almost like it's a mystery. Yes. For our mystery episode, we're telling you in the middle. <laughs> we'll never fucking be consistent. Don't you dare ask for it. Don't ask for it. Alrighty, That was good. I didn't know very much about those, but... Mm-hmm. Getting into it originally, I thought there was a lot more information on it, but there is not. Oh. The only thing that was news to me was that they were two, they think that it was two cases, basically. Two separate ones. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, they also, there was one article, the ANETV article, said that Michelle and Carmen were mentally handicapped, but none of the other articles said that, so I didn't feel like I should include that information, so. Until now. Yeah, I mean, saying it now, I don't know the validity of it, though, because I didn't see it corroborated on any other websites. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That was good. Thanks. You're welcome. Cold open? (laughs) Cold open. Okay, so, a rainy evening on January 20th, 1982, 19-year-old Lisa... Frank. What? (laughs) Lisa Frank. No. With the stickers. Lisa Al... And her boyfriend Doug Holmes had plans to meet up had plans to meet up at Doug's sister's apartment for a gathering. Lisa was a hairdresser and worked at Susan Susan Beer's salon in Kailua. Before getting off shift at 9:45, she told co-workers she was going to her boyfriend's sister's apartment in Maikiki. 
She was making her way to the apartment, but not before stopping at a grocery store to pick up some pokey. Poke. Poke. For the gathering. Oddly enough, the gathering didn't last very long, and both Doug and Lisa decided to leave around 12.20. Um, they did leave separately. Doug goes back to his university dorm um, before making her way back to her parents' home in Kailua. The next morning, Doug gets a phone call from Lisa's parents. She had not come home last night. Doug volunteered to go out looking for her. While out searching for her, he did discover her car abandoned. He immediately called the police, and the car was uh, the car was parked on the side of the highway in Manawili. Mm. That doesn't sound right. Not doesn't sound right. <laughs> but but uh, Hawaii does like hard eyes. Oh, that's true. Or they do I Why lie? Manawili. I don't know. Hmm. Near an old drive drive-in in Kailua. I'm very tired. <laughs> this is all the time, though. Uh, one drive-in in Kailua. However, the car was in a bizarre state. The driver's side window was halfway rolled down, and the floor of the car was flooded with about two to three inches of water. Okay, that's fucking weird. Yeah. And the seats were soaked. In the passenger seat was Lisa's purse, dry and untouched. The only item missing from it was Lisa's driver's license, leading them to believe that the purse had been placed there after the rain stopped. I'll believe that. Yeah. After the Hawaiian authorities were called to the scene, a statewide search for Lisa began immediately. Thousands of missing flyers were distributed around Oahu Island, and floods of volunteers came out. Exactly 10 days after the search began on January 31st, 1982, Lisa's body was discovered in a ravine near Tanta Lewis Drive in a wooded area with no streetlights. She was nude and already in a state of decomposing. The same day, the case moved from Missing Persons Unit, Honolulu Police de- de- why I want to keep saying detective. Honolulu, Honolulu, Honolulu Police Department's Burt Cornell gets involved, and after multiple attempts by multiple medical examiners, a cause of death for Lisa was never made. There was a lack of evidence, and the fact that Lisa's body was already in a decomposing state added another level of complications to an already complicated thing. Mm-hmm case. However, just days after Lisa's body was sus- suspect was suspected detectives however like no. me. however just days after Lisa's body was inspected was inspected detectives were starting to put together a theory of a possible suspect. That suspect was one of their own. <laughs> this theory became public and set the islands into panic. Women began fearing that any police officer who pulled them over could be Lisa's killer. So, how did they get to this theory, you ask? Testimonies from witnesses who were claiming that sometime in the past, they had been assaulted by a man in an unmarked vehicle posing as a police officer. This brings us back to Lisa's car, with the window halfway down as you would pull it down if a cop had stopped you. So this theory isn't that far-fetched. At the time, Burt Cornell was the lieutenant that was assigned to the Criminal Investigations Division. And 37 years later, now retired, 72, living in Florida, he says this case still haunts him. He feels that the case was completely botched. With the rumors spreading all over, the citizens were both scared and angry at what was going on and the mishandling of Lisa's case. The officer in question was put under a full investigation for about a year. And once the officer's name became public, a woman came forward from Windward Side claiming she that he had also pulled her over and that he used blue lights on his unmarked car. 
he also had a complaint against him for sexual harassment from a young woman during a police ride-along. Nope. The good thing that came from Lisa's case, though, is that they stopped, they changed their um, policy on unmarked cars Mm -hmm. and basically made it so that they couldn't have the blue light. Ooh. Um, I think they did that for regular police cars, too. I like that. Yeah. Um, however, the then city prosecutor, Charles Marsland, wasn't able to secure an indictment, and Cornell feels the grand jury proceedings were a waste of time. He bet public pressure was what made the investi- investigators zero in on, the, on this specific officer. He was quoted as saying, They had formulated premature conclusions, adding they jumped on any clue that pointed to the police officer's involvement. When the investigation fell through, it tainted the case, exposed mistakes, the detectives against others. So much so that a year after Lisa's body was buried, it was exhumed, and they found that she had been buried in the body bag with leaves and trash still inside. What the fuck? Yeah, still inside it, and her body had never even been washed. Oh my god. Yeah. They went looking for a second opinion from the Los Angeles coroners who took a look at the skull and jawbone, and the results of that exam were never made public. But the coroner did say that the advanced decomposition meant making... Any conclusions would be very difficult. Someone else at the University of Hawaii said they would take a third look, but at that point, there's a dispute about where her skull and jawbone is. What? The Honolulu Police Department says they're in the hands of the medical examiner's office, but they say that they, they returned it to the casket with the rest of the remains. The only way to really know this is to disturb her grave again. And they're not, they don't really want to do that. Her family wants them to do that, but they're like, "Mm," they're a little bit more hesitant. Oh. Why would they follow what the family wants? I guess because they've already kind of fucking botched the shit out of the investigation. They're like, if we do this again and her fucking skull's not in there. That's true. We're going to have a fucking shit show on our hands. Oh, so they don't want to fucking, they don't want what they did wrong to come out, I guess. Yeah. Even though it's very obviously out already. Yeah. Okay. So remember how the entire investigation was based on Lisa's missing driver's license? Mm-hmm. Cornell was retracing Lisa's movements on the night... Excuse me. Cornell was retracing Lisa's movements on the night of her disappearance and was able to find her license. It turns out it was left behind at the grocery store she had stopped at before the party. Oh, fuck. She had taken it out to sign a check at the grocery store and when... When that discovery was made to Cornell, it had solidified that no, Lisa was not stopped by an officer or killed by one. So with more retracing of her steps, he ended up back at Doug's sister's apartment building, the place Lisa was last seen alive, and where he met the security guard who was never spoken to by any cop before. Um, Cornell came and interviewed him. So nobody ever came to speak to this guy. (laughs) Oh my God. His name was Thomas Thornburg. Um, and he said he saw the couple arguing around 11 p.m., and then he reported that Doug drove off after Lisa left. So in his search, Cornell was able to track another person who said they saw Lisa that night. Her name was Charlotte Kamaka, a newspaper delivery driver. She would testify testify before the grand jury about what she saw on Tanta Lewis in the hours after Lisa went missing. She said she was on, a regular, on her regular route around 2.30 a.m., and in police records, she said a man drove past her in a blue car with a female passenger who appeared to be asleep or unconscious. What stood the, stood out the most to Charlotte was that when the car made a turn, her head just fell. Like, <laughs> if you're unconscious, your yeah. head you don't have any control of your neck. 
She said she got a look, good look at the driver when he made a turn and kind of just stopped and stared. After Lisa's body was found, it was Kamaka who came forward with her information. She did try to stay in contact with the police about the case, kind of calling them a lot and mm-hmm. being like, oh, like, did you hear anything new? But they never contacted her in return. <laughs> did they originally take her statement or no? They took her statement and was like, okay, we'll get back to you. And then, and then they, they never did. She was the one who kept calling them and being like, okay, so what about my statement? Like, have you found anything? Anything mm-hmm. like that. Another weird clue that turned out later to be debunked was Lisa's car, which broke down in Monowiri. Sorry, wait, you said she got a really good look at the guy. Mm-hmm. Who was it? I don't know. Did they <laughs> say it matched the description of, like, her boyfriend or anything? Um, kind of. I don't remember, uh, like I said, I don't think they ever went back. I get a little bit into it. <laughs> Another weird clue that turned out later to be debunked was Lisa's car, which broke down in Manawili near a mudslide that happened during the torrential rains that night. Officer Michael Redfelt was directing traffic and says he didn't remember seeing her Toyota, and months later he was asked to tell the grand jury that he did and report that he saw a patrol car at the officer at the, and report that he saw a patrol officer at the car. Oh. Redfeld said he refused to lie and never testified. So he was asked by peers to lie in a case. They were really trying to redeem themselves. It gets better. <laughs> by 1985, three years after Lisa's death, the lead detective on the case, Nelson Lum, wrote in a sworn statement that his massive and extensive investigation into her death had produced no evidence against a city employee acting within the course of their employment. In other words, a police officer didn't kill her. The admission showed HPD's lead suspect in the case for years was actually an innocent man. Oh. Lum also said that there was actually no direct evidence as to who caused the death of Lisa Ao, but he said that there were mo- one or more suspects in the case. Hmm. Who do you think did it? Boyfriend. It's always the fucking boyfriend. Mm-hmm. In, a record, in a recorded interview, Doug, the boyfriend, did acknowledge that he was one of the suspects, And court documents show he even agreed to two lie detector tests and failed both. (laughs) But he had an explanation, you see. (laughs) His explanation was that he felt guilty. And in a sworn statement, Lum said that explanation was good enough for him and didn't have any other reason to suspect Doug. Oh. As a part of a lawsuit filed years after Lisa's death, Lum was disposed and asked why other suspects weren't looked at more closely. He said he did question Doug about the results of the lie detector, asking him, why are you failing these tests, Doug? And he responded, according to Lum, because he felt guilty for not driving her home in the heavy rain because she was an inexperienced driver. Later, Lum would come out saying he felt Doug didn't have any motive to kill motive to kill her because there was no third party involved, which ruled out jealousy. There was no money involved. There was no baby coming. There was no reason for him to do it. But Doug did admit to Lum that he had been trying to end the relationship with Lisa saying he was going to college, being educated, while Lisa was more or less staying still education-wise. Sounds like he hated her. He sounds like a dick. (laughs) Seven years after Lisa's murder, Lum described the case as open, ongoing, and unsolved. That description remains today. Wow. Yeah. The longer the case stays cold, the harder it will be if they ever do find her murder since the case, because... Like, since the case, Charlotte, the newspaper witness, has died. The security, gu- Doug, the security guard at Doug's sister's apartment, Thomas, has died. And Doug moved to Australia. 
How long ago was this? 1983, I believe. Oh, okay. Doug moved to Australia. Oh, Charlotte was like 73 years old or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. she was old. So was, so was Thomas. Her parents have gotten a divorce, and her father has passed away, um, and they they are buried near each other, and her mother also passed away, and she lives in another cemetery. She lives in that cemetery? <laughs> She's buried in that cemetery, excuse me. Her case has been moved to a cold case unit, and it has been 38 years since anything has come up. Oh. And that's the story of Lisa Owl in Hawaii. She's one of the biggest cases in Hawaii. That was a really good case. Thanks. I just want to cite my sources real quick. I got my most of my information from hawaiinewsnow.com from the article written by Lisa Kawano and medium.com from an article written by Nick Dano. Dano! Dano! This makes sense because it's a story in Hawaii. <laughs> that's where Dano lives. Yeah. And that's, that's the story of Lisa Al. Very interesting. That was a really good story. Great job. Thanks. Very it's inform- almost like I did my homework. Formative. <laughs> Thanks, fellas, for coming down. <laughs> Thank you, fella. Thanks, fella, <laughs> for listening to this episode. Uh-huh. Hopefully you enjoyed it and learned some things. Both are unsolved, so if you know the 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 tea. truth, if you know the tea, call a cop. <laughs> call a cop. Don't call us. Don't call us. We're not cops. You can email us if you're like, I have a horrible secret I must unveil, and then we'll tell a cop. That's fine. Yep. Unless it's something, you know. But if it's related to these cases, we'll oh just God. tell a cop. <laughs> so, Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's so start. if you want to follow <laughs> us, you can do so on Instagram and Twitter. Gumshoe Weekly. On Facebook. Gumshoe Pod. And you can email us your de- deep, dark, deadly secrets at gumshoeweekly at gmail.com. And uh, th- thanks again. Bye. Bye.